Well, we took a break from our study in Revelation to do the Christmas season. But now we're going to pick it up, kind of where we left off. Now, you remember we studied the first three chapters of Revelation? The first three chapters were basically Jesus addressing Christians and the churches in that area. Each church had a specific difficulty or struggle that they were going through, and Jesus either commended them or corrected them, all in a desire to prepare them for what was coming next. Each church was in a precarious situation, or most of them were, and Jesus says, you better get ready because right after this chapter three, the rapture happens, and you don't want to be left behind after that point. Chapter four was what we're going to start today. That describes what happens after the rapture. Now, we believe this church, we believe that the rapture happens before the tribulation. They call it pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that for a number of reasons. The first of them is the term church used numerous times in chapters one through three, not mentioned again throughout Revelation until the end of chapter 22. The term bride of Christ, which is also another reference to the church, is mentioned in chapter 19, and when he mentions it, he mentions that they're in heaven, that they're not here on earth, that the bride of Christ is in heaven. Revelation 19.5 says, and a voice came from the throne, heaven, saying, praise our God, all you servants, all you fear him, both great and small, verse seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So that's another indication that the church is in heaven, not on earth during the tribulation. Another one is the promise given in the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3.10 says, since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is gonna come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. So because they overcame, they're not gonna be here for the tribulation. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, talking about the rapture, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught in the air together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Talking about when the rapture happens. The very next chapter in verse, uh, chapter five, verse nine says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe that at the end of chapter three, all, the, all Christians, all the church, we're gone. We're not here. So we're gonna start at chapter four, and what we're seeing in chapter four is the beginning of what's gonna happen throughout the rest of the book. Let me start with the first verse. John writes, after this I looked, and there before me was a, a door standing open in heaven. Now, the phrase after this, most commentators believe it's a, a passage of time has happened. It's not one continuous vision that every time he mentions the phrase after this, there has been some time that has elapsed. Revelation 7.1 says, after this, I saw four angels. Verse 9, after this, I looked. Revelation 15.5, after this, I looked again. Revelation 18.1, after this, I saw another angel. Each of these indicates a passage of time from what happened just before that. It also indicates that after the letters to the churches, he says, after that. After what? After we believe it's the rapture. Scripture isn't specific, so we can't be specific on that, but we believe through all the other passages that we won't be here. So John writes, after the voice, and the voice I heard first 
I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So the events in chapters four and five are the introduction to the events that are gonna happen through the rest of Revelation. So John's caught up in heaven, and again, after what? We, we believe it's a rapture. And he hears a voice, the same voice like he heard in chapter one. Revelation 1.10 says, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So it's familiar, John's heard it before, and now we have John going up to see in person what the voice was saying. So he looks through the door and he sees this in, ver- in chapter four, verse two. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. There are seven spirit, there, these are also the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Now, before we project that image, how many know what this, what this looks like? Any idea? You read that and you think, I, I can't comprehend what it is, but there are people that have tried to put this together and I've tried to find an image to maybe give us an idea of what this may look like. So if you can throw that up there, Brad. That's an artist's rendition of what this might look like. I don't know, I'm a visual and a kinesthetic learner. I have to touch things, I have to see things more than I have to read things. And I have to see what it looks like and that gives us someone's rendition of what chapter four looks like. So Jesus, or John sees the throne of God the Father. But notice John doesn't describe God. He describes what's going on around God because God is indescribable. You can't describe him in English words. He focuses on what is surrounding the throne. So let's look at what that could mean. Verse four, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Now it never tells us what, who those were, never addresses telling us specifically and there's a lot of thoughts on who these 12 or these 24 could be. And actually I found somewhere there's 13 different thoughts on that but none of them can be dogmatic because the Bible doesn't tell us. The most common reference, the most common thought is that these are 24 men, 12 from the Old Testament representing the 12 tribes and 12 from the New Testament representing 12 apostles, representing the whole of believers throughout time, all the way from the creation through through now. And the crowns were victor's crowns symbolizing that they overcame adversity. The Bible talks about receiving the crown after you've gone through a trial, and those are the crowns we want to lay down at Jesus' feet. You know, when you struggle in this life, the Bible says when you persevere through that, God rewards you with a crown. Now, sometimes it feels like it's not that big a deal. God does, I don't need the crown right now. Let's get me through this. I read a commentary that whenever you're going through a struggle, it says, 
Instead of asking, how can I get out of it? We should ask ourselves, what can I get from it? What is God doing in the situation? What's God trying to teach me or train me or get me to respond? How do we get out of this? Or how do we, what do we get from it? And one of the things that God wants us to do is to persevere through those situations. I was, I'm reading through the Old Testament again, and when the Israelites were, you know, were going across the desert complaining every five seconds about something going on, God put them in situations where they didn't, you know, the water was bitter, and they didn't have food, they didn't have meat. God allowed those situations to happen to get their response to that. Are they going to trust me? I mean, I got them out of Egypt. I got them through the, through the water. Are they going to trust me for water now to drink? Are they going to trust me for food? And every time they failed, they didn't trust God for that. They complained they wanted to go back. God put situations in our life to see how we're going to respond to them. What's the phrase? It's more about what life finds in you than what life presents to you. When someone bumps you, what comes out? God wants us to be able to persevere through those so we trust him through those situations and when we do, that's when the Bible says we have a crown and when we get there, we're gonna have a crown to lay down at his feet. Verse five says, and from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. The same imagery that God had in the Old Testament when he's talking to Moses from Mount Sinai. Exodus 20 verse 18 says, when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the horn, and when they saw the lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. In Exodus, this is Exodus 20, these are the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about the Ten Commandments and the corresponding judgments if you don't obey them. The same thing is being presented here. It's meant to show God's awesome presence and vindication of those who are in heaven with him at that moment. If you're in heaven, you've already been vindicated of sin. You're already forgiven of sin. And the, and the peals of thunder and the lightning represent God's presence, and because you're there, you have not been consumed by God's fire. And the rest of the revelation will go by revealing what God's judgments are on those who don't believe. Verse five says, in front of the throne were seven lampstands with burning flames. These are the seven spirits of God. Now we mentioned earlier in Revelation that the seven, the, the lampstands represented preachers in the seven churches. Now it represents the seven spirits of God. Indicates that the Holy Spirit is present at the throne, ready to judge. Seven is the number of fullness and completion of the Holy Spirit's work. So if you're in heaven, you've been, your fullness and you're completed in what God's doing in your life. Burning flames indicate judgment. Verse four says, the Lord will wash the moral filth from the women of Jerusalem. He will cleanse Jerusalem of its bloodstains by a spirit of judgment that burns like fire. I'm sorry, that's Isaiah. Fire always represents purging, judging, getting rid of sin. You know, the world likes to think of God as a God of love. True. But God's also a God of judgment. No one likes to think about God's judgment. Everyone wants to think that everything they do, God's okay with because God loves me. Now, as a parent, are you, do you love your kid no matter what they do? Yes. Do you like what they do? No. You correct them for when they do wrong. 
Your punishments for them are correcting them to make them into better adults. You may love your kid, but you may not love what they do. And if you don't love what they do, that's going to result in punishment for them. God's the same way. He loves you, but he doesn't like everything we do. And every time we sin, we're one step further away from God. God is the God of judgment. There's going to be a consequence for sin. If your sin has not been cleansed by your forgiveness by Christ in this life, there's going to be a judgment for that sin. Because God has to be a God of judgment if he's a God of love. If you never punish your child for anything they do, and everything they do that's wrong you don't care about, you don't punish them, first off, you don't love them, the Bible tells us. And the second thing is, they're gonna face somebody's judgment at some point. And we wanna make sure that we correct them here so they don't face society's judgment. God wants us to accept Christ here and escape the judgment that's to come. Verse six says, and in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Pure crystal symbolizes God's holiness. In the Old Testament when they had the temple, they had the bronze, the giant bronze laver and the priests had to wash in the laver before they went into the, old, in the, into the Holy of Holies to do their thing. They had to wash themselves. So the bronze laver, how many of you, I mean, take a bath. I, mean, I don't take baths, but women take baths, kids take baths. When you're done taking a bath, do you want to drink that water? Probably not. When you wash yourself in the laver, the water is not pure. Probably disgusting. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the Revelation, instead of a, a giant bronze laver with dirty water, it's filled with a shiny sea of glass, perfect, sin's all gone, there's nothing to imperfect the water. Sparkling like crystal, it says. Exodus 30, verse 17 says, and the Lord said to Moses, make a large bronze wash basin with a bronze pedestal. Put it between the tabernacle and the altar and fill it with water. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and their feet before they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord and before they approach the altar to burn offerings to the Lord. They must always wash before ministering in these ways or they will die. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. Every time they sacrificed an animal, animal, that was for their sin. God didn't forgive them their sin. They overlooked their sin, looking forward to what Christ was gonna do. In the New Testament, when Jesus was washing their feet, and Peter said, well, wash all of me. Jesus said, no, I just need to wash your feet. The rest of you has been cleansed. I just need to wash your feet. And what that's talking about, once you're saved, you're, you're cleansed from sin. But because you live in this world, you're going to sin daily. Whether we want to or not, we, we, just, we can't help it because we're sinful people. We don't want to sin. We pray that God's forgiveness, but we, we sin. You do a word study on the word sin, you can't go five seconds without sinning because of the definition of sin. So when Jesus is washing their feet, that means the daily sins that you do, you need to wash those clean. The rest of you is clean. You're already forgiven. You're already in God's family. But the daily sin that accumulates in our life that's what we have to wash and get rid of. And that's what, the, that's what the bronze labor was for, to get rid of the sins on their hands and their feet before they enter into God's presence. But now you're looking at a, a shiny sea of glass, no impurities, all the sin is already gone. If you're in heaven, you're already perfect. There is no sin to wash. 
Verse six, in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings had the form of a lion. The second one looked like an ox. And the third had a human face. And the fourth had the form of an eagle with wings spread out as though in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered with eyes inside and out. So now we're getting into the imagery that's throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Verse six says, in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. Covered with eyes represent intelligence, alertness, understanding, and awareness of all that's going around, going on in any direction. Verse seven says, the first of these living beings had the form of a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth had the form of an eagle. Now, most of the commentaries I read said the lion represents the king of all the animals. The ox is the chief domesticated animal at the time. Man was created in the image of God, and the eagle was considered the king of the birds. All this represents is God is God over all of creation. All four facets of creation worshiping God. God is sovereign over all of his, all that he's created, God is sovereign on. So every aspect of living beings is represented in those four figures. God is sovereign over all of it. Verse eight says, and each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered with eyes inside and out. Again, another reference to the Old Testament in the temple of God. This is a pretty much a famous verse. You all know it, Isaiah 6. It says, in the, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe, robe filled the temple. Hovering around him were the mighty seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and the remaining two they flew. In a great chorus they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The six wings symbolized humility because they covered their faces and their feet. And they also symbolized the quickness as one of the pairs allowed them to fly. Verse eight says, day after day and night after night, they kept saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Notice the comparison between Isaiah and Revelation. Isaiah, it says, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Revelation says, the one who always was, who is, and who's still to come. In the Old Testament, talking about all of the earth, what God is doing in the earth at that particular moment, God's glory is in, present in the earth. In Revelation, he's no longer in the earth. He's now in heaven. He's also elapsing time. Instead of talking about the earth and its lifespan, because the earth has a beginning, it's gonna have an end, he's now talking about eternity. God is the God of eternity. Heaven is eternal. Holy three times is emphasizing God's holy attributes. You talk about being eternal. Can you, I think I, I can imagine something never ending. How many can imagine something never ending? I have a hard time grasping something that never had a beginning. How does something never have a beginning? But God is eternal. Heaven has always existed 
And that's where we're going to be. Holiness, as God describes it, is, separ- is two different things. Holiness represents separation from and separation to. Separated, we are separated from sin and we are separated to God. When you're separated from sin, when you are saved, the Bible says sin no longer has a, a grasp on you. It no longer controls you. You're free. You don't, you're not, the Bible says you're no, no longer a slave to sin. As a, before you were a Christian, you couldn't help but sin. That's because that was your nature. But now that you're a Christian, you no longer have that nature to sin. You're tempted to sin, and you, when you do, it's your own fault. But you're not a slave to it. You can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say someone else made me do it. You chose to do it yourself. But when you're separated from sin, that means you no longer want to do it. Every time you sin, you should feel guilty about it. You should feel a conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you, and you know that you don't want to do it. So you are separated from sin. When, you're, when the Bible says you are holy, you are separated from the things that God hates. And you're also, also separated to God. Now you're clinging to God. I, I kind of equate this to marriage. When you are married, you are separated from your old life. You no longer hang out with your buddies. You no longer go drinking, whatever it was you did before you got married. You're no longer part of that. You are separated from that lifestyle. And now you are separated to your spouse. You're clinging to your spouse. You're no longer part of the old life. You're separated from that, but you are separated to your spouse. That is who you're clinging to. That is who you are separated to. And since God is eternal, everything else that we face in this life, even all the evil, is eventually going to pass away. But God still is going to remain. I mentioned in the prayer, everything, every blessing we have eventually is going to rot or be thrown away. Or we, went, we cleaned up our attic upstairs and we had tons, had a whole van full of old electronic equipment that we took to the dump. But when we bought that stuff, it was state of the art. And not long after that, it became obsolete. I was, was in the youth today, and I, I said something in the effect of, you know, no one uses DVDs anymore. Hudson, what's a DVD? I'm like, really? He didn't know what a DVD was. And I said, well, they're about the size of a 45, and that just threw them all away. But everything we have, every blessing is eventually going to be gone all the material things that God does for us and blesses us with is all going to be gone your health at some point will be gone everything that God gives us is finite it will end at some point the hope that we have is that God is eternal that what we're waiting for is not going to have an ending it's not going to have a finite time there's going to be a time where we are now in eternity that never ends. How many know who Nietzsche was? I think it's Frederick Nietzsche, right? He quoted a famous saying that says, God is dead. Signed Nietzsche. Well, not long after he died, someone made a sign that says, Nietzsche is dead. Signed God. All evil is going to be gone. 
but God will remain. And that's the time we're looking forward to, right? The older you get, the faster time flies. And things change. And the things you lived for at some point in your life, it's different now. But ultimately, the thing we should cling to is what we have for eternity because everything else is not going to be here. Verse 9, whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created everything, and it's for your pleasure that they exist and were created. The first verse tells us that this type of worship happens from time to time. It seems almost spontaneous, but it happens over and over again. And every time the living beings do that, they, they overflow with glory and the and the elders fall down before God, and they give thanks to God our Father. In other words, there's spontaneous worship in heaven. You ever listen to a worship song and just spontaneously start to worship? You listen to the lyrics of the song and it really sinks into your spirit and you just start singing it, hope you don't, you don't close your eyes while you're driving as you're listening to it, but now you, it, you begin to sing along with it and it means something to you, you worship when you least expect it. This type of worship is shown at least eight times in Revelation. And if we're going to worship in heaven, God allows us to worship here in preparation for that. God allows us to experience that spontaneous revelation or worship. When we worship in the sanctuary, it's not just because it's something on the schedule to do. It's something that we really allow our spirits to worship. The Bible says you should worship in spirit and in truth. That means when you worship, the Holy Spirit worships through you. When you, when you pray and you, and you speak in, in tongues, that's the Holy Spirit speaking through you, praying through you. You ever, you ever have a conversation where you just kind of run out of the right English words to say, you just can't express how you feel? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He starts praying through you in a way that it's beyond your ability to express in words. And when you worship God, that's when the Holy Spirit takes over and worships through you and worships exactly the way God wants you to worship and says the things God wants you to say. In, in Romans, it talks about when you're in a point in your life where you can't even pray, the Bible says the Holy Spirit prays for you. And maybe you'll groan or you'll, you'll cry during the time of worship, but the Holy Spirit will pray for you. He knows what you need, and he will pray according to what God's will is and will work in your life. And when we worship God, it's a, it, we are meant to enter his presence, and as we worship him, the Holy Spirit wells up inside of us, and then God is able to fill us. The worship time is God, we, we lifting up God, we acknowledging God, we praising God. The word is when God now comes back and speaks to us. And sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks through people, through the gifts of the Spirit, telling us things specifically for the church or for some individual, or maybe something that is said in the sermon or through the songs, ministers to you when you're worshiping in the spirit the holy spirit will say something or do something in a song or a lyric or something that we say up front that is meant for you you never for me it never fails when i need god to speak to me either my devotion that day speaks to it or a lesson i'm preparing for speaks to it 
Normally it would have meant, you know, just another lesson, but it's all, it, God always works that way. He always puts devotions and verses and things in my path to give me what I need for that moment. And when you worship, you're allowing God to do that for you. And when we leave the service, we should know that we've been in God's presence and the Holy Spirit gave us what we need for the day. You may not feel anything, but you should leave different than when you walked in because God is able to meet you where you are. Our, our lesson for the kids today, kids, teens, I want to make sure they're, they're not kids, they're teens, but the whole lesson was about how can God use you in ministry, in some ministry? Now I tried to encourage them, so if you see them today, do this for them. I told them, whenever they see someone walk in, go up and shake their hand. Or maybe even give them a hug. Because maybe that's what they need. Maybe they need some young person, some of us older guys, maybe we need a young person to come up and hug us or shake our hand. Tell me that we miss you. I said, you guys can do something that maybe none of us can do. Maybe someone needs to hear a young person say, hey, how you doing? I said, that's your ministry. That's what you can do. And they're like, ugh. But that's also for all of us. Maybe it's something that you say to somebody else in a church setting that they need to hear. The sermon has nothing to do with what they need, but maybe you do. Maybe you're able to say something to them or bless them or do something in their life that they need at that moment. That's why, you know, God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You can hear sermons online all day long, but maybe you don't have the interaction that God wants you to have in a church setting that other people can minister to you. Second Corinthians 1 talks all about it. You know, all the stuff that Paul went through and God delivered him from, the Bible says now God can use me to bless somebody else who's been there. When these guys worship, they lay their crowns down before God. Now, <clears throat> if, you, if you think a crown's not a big thing, we just went through Christmas. Have, have you ever been in a Christmas or a birthday setting where someone bought you a, a tremendous gift, but you didn't buy them anything? How do you feel? I mean, they, they poured their life into this, they spent a lot of money, and they took their time, and they gave you this great gift on Christmas, and you got them nothing, or you got them a pack of batteries or something. How do you feel? You feel terrible, right? Well, when you don't have a crown to lay down before God, that's how you're gonna feel. All the other guys around you are gonna have crowns. The Bible says it's okay to work for those crowns because you wanna be able to give that crown to the Lord. Now, these 24 elders have been given authority, and what they're symbolizing, they're taking off their crowns and placing them before God, saying, the only authority I have is because you give it to me. I have no authority. You have given me that authority. What they say in their praise indicates that they recognize that God is their Lord. The name they use here is the Old Testament name for God. And the Old Testament name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, and that's the same God who keeps his promises, and keeps his covenants. That's the term that they're using when they're praying and they're worshiping God. When we worship God, we worship the God who keeps his promises. Remember that God keeps his promises. What promise are you clinging to 
that hasn't happened yet. The Bible says God keeps his promises. It's never going to be when you want it to be. It's always going to take longer than you like. But that doesn't negate God's promise. And when they're worshiping God, they're saying, you are the God who keeps his promises, keeps his covenant. So whatever that means, whatever promise I'm clinging to, that's the promise I'm trusting God for. And it's not going to happen when I want it. But I'm still going to trust God for it. They end, they, they end their praise by acknowledging that he is their creator, the giver of every good thing. That everything exists, that everything that does exist has been created by God for our benefit and mostly for God's benefit. What do I mean? Every blessing that God gives us is meant to bless us, but it's also meant to be used by us to bless God. In other words, the things that you have what do you do with them? Do you honor God with them? Do you take care of them? Do you use them for God's glory? I was reading a, a thing this morning talking about tithing. He says it's great. You know, one of the commentaries says it's great if you give 10%, but what do you do with the other 90%? Do you squander it? Do you waste it? You're not giving glory to God by that. Sure, the 10% is, is fine. What are you doing with the rest of it? Do you honor God? Do you manage it well? Do you do things with it that honor God? Do you bless people with it? Everything that we have, our material wealth, our health, everything we have, do we honor God by doing what God wants us to do with it? I remember when I was in high school, I had a, my parents, when I was, no, this is like when I was 10 years old, parents bought me a Schwinn three-speed bike, brand new. And uh, when I was out with my friends, one of my buddies ran right into the bike and knocked it over. And I'm like, what? And I went home, I told my folks, and they said, well, they're, they're, they don't appreciate what they have, and they're jealous of what you have. And when I was in high school, a buddy of mine, his parents bought him a brand new car. It was an AMC Gremlin, but it was brand new. Okay, I'm, I'm driving a 68 Volkswagen, they barely make it to school. He has a brand new AMC Gremlin. And we're outside the house one day, and out of the blue, he just reaches out and kicks in the quarter panel of his car. I said, Bill, watch, why? He says, I don't care, it's just a car. He didn't appreciate what was given to him. He didn't use it. He didn't appreciate what his parents did for him in the car. When we abuse the things that God gives us, we're doing the same thing. Do we... Do we appreciate what God's given us and do we use it and take care of it and, and use what God's given us to show God that we appreciate it. Because what do we have that God didn't first give to you? Whatever it is, we should honor God by using it the way he'd want us to, which includes your life. What are we doing with our life to honor God? It's great, we wanna be in church, but how do we live the other six days of the week? Because this church doesn't save you. This church hopes to teach you and train you and get you ready for heaven, but it's up to what you all do in the rest of the week. The theme of the chapter four is a vision of God the creator. The theme of chapter five, which we'll talk about next week, is a vision of God the redeemer. God who created everything has the power and ability and will bring the world to its proper goal and its proper end. 
You know, I've said before that I've never really preached on Revelation. I've always kind of bypassed it, partly because I didn't understand it and partly because most of it happens when we're not here. But I was convicted. The Bible says all Scripture is given by God and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. All Scripture, not just the parts I like. And Revelation 1 verse 3 says this, God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church. I want blessed. And he blesses, all, he blesses all who listens to it and obeys what it says. For the time is near when these things will happen. I want blessed. I know you want blessed. And I believe God wants to pour out his spirit on the church. This church. And everyone in it. And I believe that God is ready to do that. So that's why we're studying this book. Because the Bible says God blesses the one who reads it and God blesses to the one who listens to it. Man, I want God's blessing. The first three chapters are the, getting the church ready to escape what's coming. All those were written to make us ready. What's Tiff say? Prophecy isn't given to scare us, but to prepare us. The rest of Revelation is letting us know what will happen to those who aren't with us when we get raptured. We don't want, we don't want to be left behind. And we don't want anyone else left behind. That's why we focused on praying for people so much. It's great that we do all the things that we do, but the most important thing is bringing people to Christ. Because when we're gone, that's all that matters, all that matters. Last year we instituted the twice a month prayer on Thursday nights. We're continuing that through the year. We got a week of prayer coming up beginning tonight. All focused around, amongst other things, bringing people to Christ. If we were meant to only worship God, we can do that in heaven. If we were meant to only study God's word, we can do that in heaven. If we're meant to pray, well, we can do that in heaven. But the one thing we can't do when we're in heaven is bring other people with us. That's why the church is here. That's why we do those five things right there. We connect people to Christ. We help them to grow in their knowledge of Christ. We get them to serve because there's blessing in serving others. And then we let them to go and tell people what God's done for you. And finally, when all that's done, we get to worship God for what he's done in our life. The rest of Revelation is not pretty. It is a bad, bad time. And if we go through the book, you're gonna see how, how horrible it is and how horrible it's gonna be. I don't know anybody I want to go through that, to experience that. But as bad as that's gonna be, that's still nothing compared to what hell's gonna be like. The tribulation is seven years of torture and pain and anguish, but only seven years. Hell is forever. That should motivate us to do what God's calling us to do. 
Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment with me? Whenever you press into God and start doing what God wants you to do, you can expect opposition. You can expect things to come up in your life to draw your attention away from what God wants to do. Maybe good things, maybe bad things. But they're all designed to keep your attention focused on the situation and not the God of the situation. I believe this is gonna be a great year not because I think it, but because I believe God wants to move before those last days. Before the rapture, God wants a revival of people, a revival of churches. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance, and he's giving us time to do that. So I believe as we press in, we're gonna see trouble. We're gonna see opposition. But the Bible says God's already won the battle for us. God says he will fight for you. Exodus and talking to the Israelites, when the army was approaching, God says, stand still. You don't have to do anything. I'm gonna fight for you. And I believe as we do what God wants us to do, God is gonna fight for us. And God is gonna allow us to see great victories. God is gonna allow us to see people get saved, their lives transformed. Nothing like a a transformed life as a testimony of a miracle in their life. And I believe that God wants to do that before before he closes time out. But maybe you're here this morning and you've, maybe you've been in church all your life or maybe this is your very first time in church. But you've never really committed your life to Christ. You've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin to make you right with God, to accept his sacrifice as payment for your sin. The Bible says, without forgiveness, we cannot see heaven. We can't go to heaven without God's forgiveness, without Christ's forgiveness. And you want to be sure that you're there whenever that time comes for you. And you want to miss the seven years of pure hell that's going to happen on this planet. Well, the Bible says you're not here by accident. You're here for a purpose. You're here because somebody or something was said that you needed to hear. And the desire to allow you to recognize that you need to have your sin forgiven. The Bible tells us that the wage of the sin is death. That's separation from God. The Bible also tells us that the wage of the, the, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The gift of God. Jesus paid the debt that you should have paid. All of us should have suffered the pain that Jesus suffered because of our sin, our rebellion against God. God says, none of of you can do it right. You can't do it sufficiently. So I'm gonna send Jesus who's gonna do it right. He's gonna do it sufficiently. And all you have to do is trust that. Believe in that. If that's you and you want that relationship with Christ, you want to have your sins forgiven, you want to know, the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. If you're unsure, you don't know, then this is the day to get sure. Because once you repent and you accept Christ, the Bible says you have the assurance in your spirit 
that you're going to be in heaven. And if that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now. We're going to pray. I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love us and you care for us as much as you do. I thank you for all your blessings in our life, Lord, all the things you've blessed us with. We acknowledge that they're from you and we want to honor you with them. And Father, we want to prepare our hearts and our spirits for what you have next for us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit fills each person here. If they're not baptized in the Spirit, Lord, baptize them right now in the name of Jesus. Allow their lives to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Let their minds be renewed, as Romans 12 tells us. Renew our minds. Help us to think about what you're thinking about. Get us on track with what you want to do. And Father, when we do that and we see the Spirit working through us, we know that, God, we're on your path and we are doing what God tells us to do. And that motivates us to do it even more. So Lord, I pray that you would begin this year with a new indwelling of your Spirit in our lives. The Bible says to be continually filled. When you're you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, Father. We know that. But your word says that we use it up. We need to be filled every day. So fill us every day with your spirit. Give us the mind of Christ. Renew our minds. Let our lives be exactly what you want them to be. And I pray your heads of protection around us as we seek to do your will. We know the world and the enemy doesn't want us to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So Lord, we need your protection to do that. And we believe that you will do that. So Lord, I commit each person to you this morning. Allow them to really feel that energizing spirit in their life and then give them the excitement they need to go out and do what you've called them to do. Now, Father, I ask you to bless us as we leave this morning. Energize us, use us, and help us to honor you in all that we do. Father, I commit everyone here to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. See you Wednesday night. New lesson. Haven't decided yet. Reading two books.